As you'll be able to see from the screen, this gospel reading comes from the writings of John, chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. This is the gospel of Christ. Thank you very much, Tony. Uh, good morning, everybody. Great to see you. Uh, just before we do anything else, I'm just going to ask that you bear with me if I get a little bit croaky today. I've just come down with a cold last couple of days, so I hope you can hear me. hope the voice holds out. Uh, thanks. I think I just got turned up. Right on cue. Well done. Um, I can't remember ever having to pause and sneeze during a sermon before. This could be a first today. We'll see. I hope not. Uh, let's pray together before we look at God's Word. Gracious God, we do thank you for uh, the privilege and the joy of being together as your people. We thank you that you've made us your people in the coming of the Lord Jesus, his death for us and his resurrection. Thank you that you've united us together in him. 
Thank you that we can express that in being here together today. And we thank you that you've spoken to us. And as we listen to what you say to us in this part of your word today, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would be ready to receive these great truths, that they would shape our lives so that we can live for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to say, uh, one of the things about preaching is that you're almost always aware as you open a part of God's word and you think what you might say from it, uh, that you're very aware of there's more in there than you can convey in 20, 25 minutes. Uh, But I have to say, I've been acutely aware of that, uh, preaching through John the last few weeks, including today. We're sort of in in partway through a short series from John 14 onwards. Uh, We're taking a break next week for the guest service when James will speak to us, and then the plan is to be back in John, so dealing with John will be James's problem then, which is great. Um, But you probably noticed that as we heard heard the reading that Tony brought to us. This is a passage that is packed with ideas, packed with things that we could talk about and spend a lot of time thinking about. Uh, Images, pictures, ideas pile up one after another to give us this majestic picture. So it might surprise you then when I say that one of the things I love about this passage and one of the reasons I think this passage is loved by so many Christians is that it gives us the beautiful simplicity of the Christian life. The beautiful simplicity of the Christian life. Because if you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you probably know that being a Christian doesn't always feel that way. doesn't always feel simple. Uh, in fact, there might be very little about it that feels simple at times. You might find in the cut and thrust of life with so much to think about, so many challenges to face, so many opportunities before you to do good. Most of us probably feel from time to time, where exactly am I going in my Christian walk? And how do I keep going? How do I keep moving forward? Maybe if things are going wrong and you wish it was different, you find yourself thinking, where did it go wrong? What can I do to change things? Or if things are going well, you might think, well, how do I make sure it keeps going well? Or is it just completely random? Did I just randomly stumble into this period of feeling like things are going well as a Christian? Maybe you wonder what does going well even mean as a Christian? You want to live a fruitful Christian life that pleases God, but you wonder if you're missing something. Well, if we think any of those kind of thoughts and we know that sometimes being a Christian isn't simple... Let me cut straight to the chase and show you what I mean by the beautiful simplicity of the Christian life from this passage. Verse 4, Jesus says, remain in me. Remain in me. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. And then he goes on in verse 5, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, a more literal translation of that would be if anyone remains in, <clears throat> remains in me and he's speaking to a room full of men, the 11, but clearly what he says here would apply to anybody, male or female, young and old, remain in him. Do you want to live a fruitful Christian life? Well, if you fail to remain in Jesus, you will bear no fruit. But if you remain in Jesus, you will bear much fruit. That's all there is to it. Now, at this point, I'm tempted to just go sit down, say, there we go, that's it. But we probably can go a little further because this passage, as much as it gives us that beautiful simplicity, there is also that depth to it. Uh, It's sort of a microcosm of the whole of John's Gospel. You might have heard John's Gospel described famously as 
uh, shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough to drown an elephant. And I think as you read it, you start to feel that and and you'll see that in this passage. So let's just take a few moments here and what we're going to try and do is just hit a couple of the highlights of the depth that Jesus gives to this beautifully simple message of remaining in him. So we're going to look at what the passage tells us about Jesus and we're going to look at what it actually means in practice to remain in him. So first of all, what does the passage tell us about Jesus? Well, I'm sure you saw it as we heard it read. Jesus is the vine. Jesus is the true vine. That's how he describes himself twice in the passage, in verse 1 and verse 5. And partly what he's doing here, obviously, is using a kind of a real-world metaphor that they would have been able to understand as he spoke to his disciples. They could all understand a vine. But there's also something bigger than just a simple metaphor going on here. Jesus is actually using an image that was very common in the Old Testament to describe the people of God, to describe Israel, uh, the people of God in the Old Testament, the people that God had saved and made into his covenant people, his nation. They're often described in the Old Testament as a vine. The problem is when the Old Testament describes Israel that way, generally it's in a negative way because it's describing Israel as an unfruitful vine. Uh, Let me give you one example. This is from Isaiah chapter 5. Just listen to a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4. God looks at Israel and he says to them, What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And the vineyard there is Israel. He says, When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Uh, Verse 7 of that same passage The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vine he's alighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed, for righteousness but heard cries of distress. The Old Testament builds up this picture that Israel was supposed to be the people of God but they failed time and again. Even though he saved them, they continually turned away from him in disobedience, in rebellion, They didn't live as the people he had made them to be. They were not the true vine because they were fruitless. But where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. That's the picture he's painting. Jesus always lived in perfect obedience to his father. Verse 10, he says he obeyed his father's commands. He remained in his love. He always sought to bring glory to his father in everything he did. Jesus is the true vine. He's the perfect man of God. He's everything Israel should have been. He's everything we should have been, living in that perfect relationship of obedience to his Father. And that's why it is that he can say to the 11 disciples, and he can say to us, well, do you want to live live a fruitful life? Remain in me. Now, I'm no gardener at all. And I would be put to shame talking to any of you that are gardeners, but I think even I can understand this image. If you take a branch and you cut it off a tree or you take a viney bit and cut it off, that's what they're called, right? Pull it off a vine. What does it do? I mean, I have a vine and I tried this a few weeks ago when I started looking at this passage. I tried it, I broke a bit off and within a day or two it was withered. We all know that's what happens. The the branch, the, the bit coming off the end, it doesn't have any life in itself. It only has life, it only bears fruit by remaining attached to the thing that gives it life, and that is the the whole tree or the whole vine where, where the growth is coming from. But if that branch stays attached, it will be just as healthy as the vine itself. 
If the tree is healthy or the vine is healthy, then the branch will produce fruit. And so with that in mind, Jesus uses this image both to warn and to encourage. He does warn, doesn't he, that if you don't remain in him, then you won't bear fruit. You won't bear eternal fruit that lasts. You won't give glory to God. In fact, in verse 2, he speaks of God the Father as the gardener who will cut off any branches that don't bear fruit. Uh, Probably when he says that, he's alluding again back to the Old Testament, to, to God's judgment on Israel for their rebellion against him. But I wonder if he's also alluding back to Judas. Remember Judas, one of, one of the twelve, on this very night, just a few moments before Jesus says these words, he's gone out to betray Jesus. He's turned his back on Jesus. He's shown through his actions that even though he was close to Jesus for so long, when the crunch came, he did not remain in Jesus. He turned against Jesus and preferred the rewards of the world. And it's possible that there can be people like Judas right up to today, not in, not in everything that he did, of course, but it's possible that we can be people who are close to Jesus and we give the appearance of being in him and even for a time an appearance of bearing fruit, but that in the end we don't remain in him. We choose the ways of the world, we choose the rewards of the world rather than remaining in Jesus. And when that happens, all that there is for a person like that is to be thrown away and to wither and to die as verse 6 tells us. So the warning is very strong. There's no question about that. It's one thing to come into close contact with Jesus, but we must remain in him. But as the warning is strong, so is the encouragement from these verses. I wonder if you've ever, I don't know if you're a gardener, but if you are, you might have had that experience. You've got a tree, you've got a vine, you've got some kind of plant that you really like, and it's borne fruit or it's flowered nicely for a while, but then it just suddenly dies. You know, something, something just goes wrong. You know, I don't know what happens. And maybe later on you, you dig it up and you find what was wrong in the soil or it was diseased or something. Whatever it happens, things can just wither suddenly, can't they? The great news here is Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not that kind of vine. He will always remain strong because he is the true vine. He is the perfect son of God, perfectly obedient to his father, fruitful and strong and growing forever. So he can promise if we remain in him, just like a branch that remains in a healthy tree, if we remain in him, we will bear fruit. Do you see how this is all built on the incredibly close connection that Jesus paints between us and him? One of the things we've seen the last couple of weeks in John 14 is the incredibly close connection between Jesus and his Father. comes up again and again through this whole section. But now he's bringing us into that. He's saying there is this incredibly close connection between us as believers in him, those who trust in him and him. We're not just told to remain close to him. We're told to remain in him. It's one of the New Testament's favourite ways of describing what it is to be a Christian. You are actually in Jesus. You are united to him by faith. As you trust in him as your Saviour and Lord, the Bible can say you are in him so that what happens to him happens to us. And as we remain in him, he remains in us. Do you see how we drop that in there in verse 4? 
the connection, the, the holding on to Jesus isn't just a one-way street. It's not just it's up to you to do it. Jesus says he will remain in us. Friends, if you are a believer in Jesus, he's holding on to you. Jesus actually plays the decisive part in forging this connection, in bringing this connection that transforms everything about our lives. And he promises, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. I will hold on to you. Nothing will take you out of my hands. So do you start to see, as we, as we paint that picture, the beautiful simplicity of what's being said here? How it, it cuts through and it, it clarifies so many of the questions we ask about the Christian life the searching we sometimes go through. Am I on the right track? What do I need to do differently? Why are things hard? What's going well? The doubt that we sometimes have if we might be missing something crucial. Do you see how what Jesus says here cuts through so much of that? All we have to do is remain in him, connected to him as the true vine. Okay, that's all very well. You say, great, I get it, remain in Jesus. But what does that mean? Can we be a little bit practical with it? Can we say, what, what's this actually look like? Now, there are lots of ways we could answer that if we work through the whole New Testament. But I think the passage that we're reading today zeroes in on one thing in particular, what it means to remain in Jesus. From our passage, in a nutshell, it looks like obedience to Jesus' commands. Obedience to Jesus' commands and specifically to his command that we love each other. So let me try and show you uh, where we get this. In verse 9 of the passage, uh, Jesus makes a kind of a subtle shift in what he's saying. So in verse 9 he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So there again is that, that connection between Father and Son and now between us and the Son. But then he says, Now remain in my love. Okay, so remember he's, he's been saying previously, remain in me. Now he says, remain in my love. So these things are parallel. So to remain in him is to remain in his love. And then what does it look like to remain in Jesus and in his love? Well, verse 10 tells us. It looks like obedience. Verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. To remain in Jesus is to continue living in obedience to him. Not, not in a kind of a works righteousness way, as though obedience is the thing that saves us and makes us Christians. That comes by trusting Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, the one who brings us to God. But the only way to keep living that life, to keep following Jesus, is to live a life of obedience, where remaining in him mean, means we're listening to him as our Lord and our God and our risen Saviour who rules his people by his word, and so we live in obedience to him. It means not being like Judas, not getting up close to Jesus, but actually in the end missing the point and then abandoning him when something else comes along. It means not in the end being like Old Testament Israel, who had a God who loved them and had done so much for them, but in the end they turned away from that and went with the world around them, wanting to be like others rather than wanting to follow God and live in obedience to him. To remain in Jesus is to obey him. Now, at that point, you might be tempted to think, really? That, that's what it comes down to, just obedience? This, this grand clarifying idea that Jesus gives us about being the true vine so we remain in him, we bear much fruit, 
it just comes down to obedience to him. Isn't that maybe a bit dry or a bit restrictive, you might think? That's why verse 11 is so important. Look with me at verse 11. Jesus says, I've told you this, I've told you to obey my commands, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. See what Jesus is saying there? He's not telling them to obey him, to repress them or to put a heavy burden on them or to make their lives miserable. He is telling them to obey him for their joy because he knows that to live in obedience to him will be for their real joy. That is what they really need. And the human temptation since the very beginning has been to believe the exact opposite, hasn't it? You go back to Genesis 3, you go back to the garden and you read the account there of the serpent coming along and talking to Eve. How was the serpent able to deceive Eve? Basically it was by saying, you know God's holding out on you, right? You know when God tells you to do things, he's a killjoy. He doesn't want what's best for you. He's just looking out for his own interests. Well, that was the temptation that she went for. And her husband followed along. And you know how that ended. And from then on, every single one of us, in some way or other, is tempted to believe that same lie. The the lie that says, I know what will make me happy. I know what's in my best interests. I know what will fulfil me and give me a good life. And if I come to a crunch of God's word says one thing and I want to do something else, well, I'll go with this because surely that's going to work well. I know perfectly well. The essence of sin is in creatures saying to their creator, God, thank you very much for making me, but I'll take it from here. I know what's best for me. You actually don't know. You're holding out on me. What you tell me is not for my best. So if you say this, I'm going to do that. Rather than saying, there is a God who made me. There is a God who loves me, and I know he loves me because he's given his one and only son for me. How could, how could he not love me when he's done that? And so if he tells me to do something, I can trust that it's in my best interests. Even if I don't know exactly how that works itself out at any given moment, I can trust in the end that when God says something, he knows what he's talking about. And so he, obedience to him will be for my joy. God doesn't command us how to live to be a killjoy. It's the exact opposite. He commands us how to live for our joy. So here's the logic as we put the whole thing together. Jesus is the true vine. We're told to remain in him, which in this passage means to live in obedience to his commands, which is for our joy. And specifically, the command that he focuses on here is the command for his disciples to love one another. To love one another. Verse 12, love each other as I have loved you, Love the way Jesus loved. The the kind of love that makes enemies into friends. Verse 13, 14 and 15, that beautiful idea that we're now Jesus' friends. And he says it again in verse 17. This is my command, love each other. Friends, what an impact it can make on one another when we love that way. And praise God, I can look around the room and, and know that this is a room where people do love each other this way. What an impact it makes when we do that. What an impact it makes on the world around us as we love that way, as we genuinely sacrifice for each other. And one of the reasons we have to love that way 
is, as Jesus says in the next section of this whole, this whole section, in the second half of chapter 15, Jesus says that the world is going to hate us. It hated him, and so it's going to hate us if we're faithfully following him. And so with that expectation, how could we do anything but love each other? We need each other. We need to love each other when the world around us is going to hate us. So it's worth just pausing to think, is there anyone that you know of, any, anyone in your life, a, a fellow believer somewhere, could be someone in this room right now, someone who's part of this church, anyone where your relationship with that person is fractured or broken, where there isn't this kind of love happening and where the relationship needs to be restored? If that's the case anywhere, we need to make sure that happens, don't we? We can't just put that in second place because we live in a world that is going to make it hard enough to follow Jesus, how could we have infighting or bickering or opposition among Christians? We're supposed to love each other, just as Jesus has loved us. And so I hope you see that the beautiful picture that Jesus paints here, a picture which has so many layers, some we haven't even touched on at all or hardly touched on today, a picture which has so much to it and yet is beautifully simple, and cuts through so much of what we worry about or the desire we have to live a godly Christian life, remain in him. Remain in him. Friends, I'm going to speak just as we finish here um, slightly obscurely about something, so bear with me. At the moment, many of us here are worried about the idea of remaining we hear that word and we feel quite anxious about whether or not we will remain. Not in Jesus, but what it will mean for us to remain Anglican. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, but rejoice and be glad that you don't know because probably you don't need to know. But for many of us, in our denomination, there are things happening. And what it means to remain Anglican is an open question for us at the moment. I'm not going to go into that, but I am going to say... So those of us feeling anxious about that, please take heart and take encouragement that from this passage, far and away the most important thing is whether we as a church remain in Jesus. And the rest will work itself out. I know I'm simplifying a complex matter, but remain in Jesus. Others around us, individuals, churches, will make their own decision and those decisions will have big consequences, as our passage tells us. But for us and for our part, far and away the most crucial thing is whether or not we remain in Jesus. Trusting in him for our salvation, trusting him to lead us as a church as he rules over us by his word, trusting in him as the way, the one who brings us to God, the truth, the one who shows us all truth about God, the one who is the life, who gives us the very life that we need, obeying him as the risen Lord who rules over us and tells us how to live in his world for our joy. That's the most pressing need for our church today, isn't it? But it's not new. We find ourselves in an interesting time, but it's not as though that's some special command for us. The pressing need that we have as a church today is the same pressing need that every church and every Christian has had down through history, that is to remain in Jesus. Because he's the true vine, 
And if you remain in him, you will bear much fruit to God's glory. Let's pray.